right. Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming for the talk. Um, we're going to get started now. Um, so today we have Claire Donaldson speaking about um, speaking about the Leeds um, Operations Project and uh, some of her work. Um, so Claire is the director at LEAP, L-E-E-P, and Leeds Programs in West Africa and Communications. She was previously Chief Operating Officer at the Happier Lives Inst Institute in an, and is an incoming trustee of Suvida, and she has a PhD in Earth Sciences from the University of Cambridge. Claire has been involved in the effective altruism community since 2015, and when she co-directed Giving What We Can, Cambridge. So with that, I'll let Claire take the stage. Thank you all for joining. Hi, so yeah, my name is Claire and I'm a co-director at LED Exposure Elimination Project, or LEAP for short. Uh, we are an early stage nonprofit, just 18 months old, originally incubated by charity entrepreneurship. And we drive policy change in low and middle, middle income countries around lead exposure. So the talk today is going to be in two halves. The first half of the talk, I'll tell you about our work so far over the last 18 months. And one thing that surprised us is it's been going faster than we expected. Uh, you have this idea that policy change is, is slow and we've, we've been sort of pleasantly surprised at the progress we've made. So in the second half of the talk, I'll offer a few reflections about why this might be. And I hope this will be useful to other people and projects in the effects of altruism community. And I hope that there'll be five minutes at the end for, for questions. So lead uh, is toxic. It has no uh, use in the body, but mimics calcium and iron, which means that it can get everywhere, uh, into your blood, your brain, your kidneys, uh, your reproductive system, liver. Um, and this can lead to all kinds of problems like high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, kidney damage, uh, anemia, uh, and more. And perhaps the worst effect is on the effects on the brain and the central nervous system. This is particularly bad for kids. So when a child's brain is developing, if they have lead exposure, this can affect the, their cognitive development, which in turn affects their education that they can attain and then their, their future earnings later in life. So lead is very bad, but there was a really great news story in 2021. Uh, finally, we have stopped using lead in gasoline, lead in petrol. Uh, Algeria was the last country and used up the last of its stockpiles. And so luckily there is no more lead in gasoline, which is fantastic news. Uh, it's thought to be a real huge win for the world, estimated to prevent 1.2 million premature deaths from, from lead exposure every year, as well as two and a half trillion US dollars um, in terms of uh, earnings. So this shows that progress is possible um, on lead exposure. But unfortunately, there's still a huge amount to be done. So it's estimated that one in three children in the world have uh, blood lead levels higher than five micrograms per deciliter. So this is the level that the WHO defines as the threshold for when action is warranted uh, because of the severity of the health effects. Um, but it's worth bearing in mind that some of the effects on cognitive development that I previously mentioned can happen at even low levels of exposure. So it's not like less than five micrograms per deciliter is good. Any amount of lead exposure is, is bad. It's also thought to cause nearly 1% of the entire global burden of disease. So all the, the illness and disability that happens in the world, it's, it's estimated that nearly 1% of that is from lead exposure, which is uh, just kind of a staggering uh, figure. 
And finally, uh, over 1% of GDP is thought to be lost also because of lead exposure. So this is coming from that effect on cognitive development and therefore loss of earnings. Um, and it doesn't even include the, the costs from healthcare, perhaps increased crime rates and things like that. Uh, so the scale of this problem is, is massive. Now, where does the lead exposure come from? Well, all kinds of sources. So just showing you a few up here, uh, there's lead used in paint, uh, lead acid batteries and the, the poor recycling of those. Water pipes might have lead in, uh, cosmetics, mining and smelting operations, uh, electronic waste, spices like turmeric can sometimes be con contaminated with lead, um, and cookware and crockery as well. So lots of different sources, um, but one of the main sources is lead paint. Uh, lead is put into paint as a pigment to give paints color. Uh, it can be used as a dryer to speed up the drying of the paint and as an anti-corrosive. We have known lead paint is harmful for over 100 years, uh, and it's one of the most well-evident sources of exposure. It's thought to be the most important source of exposure in the US today from lead paint that's on walls and people's houses. But unfortunately, it's still available to buy in many countries in the world. So this map shows you uh, studies that have been done on paint that's available to purchase on the market in countries around the world. The, the darker the color of red, the greater the proportion of samples are that tested that have high levels of lead in them. So you can see that uh, of all the countries where the data has been collected, you can still buy a lot of lead paint um, today. Now, lead paint was banned in the UK in the 1970s, um, but is still unregulated in over half of countries around the world. So this graph, the uh, burgundy color shows you countries where there is no lead paint laws and lead paint is still legal to, to produce and use. Uh, and the blue countries are where lead paint has been banned. So because lead paint is still pervasive, still used in many countries, and because we know that lead paint laws can be a solution to this problem, this is what LEAP is currently focusing on, is trying to eliminate lead paint um, in the world today. So I'll tell you a little bit about our approach. There's uh, three main parts of our model. The first is to do a study and test paint available to purchase on the market for lead. And that tells us if and to what extent this is a problem in a country that we work in. So the first part of this study is just to go to lots of shops and market stores and stores and try and identify all the brands of paint available in a country and buy the paint and then test it for lead. So this is a photo of a shop I was in just a few weeks ago in Sierra Leone. And we're particularly looking for oil-based paint. So oil-based paint, uh, what's it called solvent-based paint, is the kind of thick, glossy paint that you might use to uh, paint doors or windowsills or skirting boards, that kind of thing. Uh, it's much more likely that that will contain high levels of lead than water-based or emulsion paint, which would be the kind you might use on walls. So that's what we're particularly looking for. And once we've got samples of every brand of paint, uh, of oil-based paint in the country, uh, we prepare dry samples of that paint. So uh, here I am uh, with a collaborator in Liberia uh, preparing these dry samples. So you, you basically paint a bit onto a piece of plastic uh, and then send it off to a lab for testing. Uh, you, you're waiting for it to dry so that you can put it in the post and, and mail it. And so you can make jokes that my job is, is watching paint dry. It just is true. Um, that is the case. And at the lab, they use spectroscopy to tell us the concentration of lead in the dry paint in parts per million. 
So for this talk, I'll mostly tell you about our project in Malawi, which is the first country that we went to. Uh, and we'll use that as a bit of a case study for, for our work. So here are the results of the paint study that we did in Malawi. Uh, what you can see is we tested 23 samples of oil-based paint from eight different brands. Some were locally manufactured paints, some were imported. And what you can see is that 57% of the samples contained greater than 90 parts per million lead. This is the limit recommended by the WHO and the limit that's said in, in lead paint laws. And lead was particularly found here in the locally produced brands rather than uh, paint that was imported from South Africa in this case. So from these results, it immediately tells us there's dangerous levels of lead available in paints that people are buying and using in their homes. So the next step in the model is, is obviously to try and do something about this, uh, leading us to the government advocacy. So we share our results with government departments. Typically, this might be a Ministry of Health, a Ministry of Environment, or possibly a, a regulatory authority like a Bureau of Standards. And we try to take a fairly targeted approach and engage with decision makers in government who are, are actually able to do something about this. In Malawi, we spoke with policymakers, particularly in the Ministry of Health and the Bureau of Standards. So this is my colleague Lucia at a meeting with Stephen Kielli, the Director of Testing at the Bureau of Standards. And when we took our data to him and showed him the results of this study, he said that this was a wake-up call for them. And as it turned out, we didn't know this when we started, but it turned out that Malawi already had a lead paint standard. So that was not meant to be lead in the paint, but Stephen Kielli explained that they thought that lead in paint was an outdated technology. They didn't know it was still a problem, so they weren't uh, monitoring or enforcing this, this standard because they just weren't aware that this was still an issue. And as a result of the new data, uh, immediately, the Bureau of Standards said that they would start implementing the standard that they had. They would incorporate monitoring into their, their monitoring systems they already had, and that they would make a plan to start uh, testing for compliance and enforcing this standard. Uh, and he told us that that happened. He made that commitment uh, in under three months since we started advocacy in Malawi, which was just much faster than, than we were expecting that kind of uh, change in, in policy to come about. The final main step of our model is working with industry. So it's not trivial to change uh, your paint and get the lead out of the paint. So we try and help with this reformulation process, it's called. Uh, we offer technical assistance to manufacturers. This might be offering a, a free consultation with a paint technologist to help them get the lead out of their paint. There are four local manufacturers in Malawi, and I'm really happy to say that so far three of them have engaged with our support and are already uh, taking the first steps to reformulate their paint. So there's still a long way to go in Malawi. We won't be satisfied until we've retested the paint and shown that there is no longer lead paint available on the market. Um, but we're really happy that the progress we've, we've managed to make in the last 18 months. We've estimated the cost effectiveness of our program in Malawi. Uh, so we look at our program costs and also the benefits that accrue to people's health and to their income because of eliminating lead paint. Uh, and we estimate, we think the implied cost effectiveness of our program is looking extremely competitive with GiveWell's top charities. And then what we've done in the last year is expand to several more countries. So we're now running projects in nine countries. We are working with five governments. And since the Malawi study, we've done four more paint testing studies. 
And as I, as I keep alluding to, our progress has been faster than, than we were expecting. So I'll spend the rest of the talk giving some ideas about why our approach and our intervention might be conducive to this. Just a couple of caveats before I, I give you these reflections. The first point to make is that we are a young organization, only 18 months old. We undoubtedly have a lot more to learn, so bear that in mind. And the second point is that although we aim to move fast, we do want to do our job well. We really don't want to advocate for regulation that then is technically introduced but is not enforced by the government. It's really important that we get buy-in from policymakers and that they have the capabilities they need to enforce the regulation. So bear in mind that I am talking about moving fast, but I, I do, we do want to be doing our job, our job well. Okay, so there are five points that I'll make uh, in no particular order. The first point is that we try to take lots of different routes, kind of any route that we can to engage with policymakers and indeed uh, other stakeholders um, that we would like to work with in a, on a new project. So to give you one technique we've used, um, very fortunately for us, uh, Ali Abdul, who is a popular YouTuber, is a friend of Leap and has helped us out on a couple of occasions, uh, like with this tweet. So this was a couple of months ago. We were looking to start projects in three more countries, in Niger, Angola, and Burundi. Uh, but we didn't have any real connections there at this point. So uh, Ali tweeted this. Uh, and it actually turned out to be really helpful. We got replies like this one. Uh, so this tweet actually has turned into a partnership with an environmental NGO in Angola, uh, which is, is pretty neat. And we got loads more helpful replies. Here's, here's just a few of them. Uh, when Ali did a similar thing about, he posted on social media about our project in Malawi, uh, the connections that we got through that and ended up leading us to people in the Ministry of Health and in the Bureau of Standards. Uh, so the social media has, has worked quite well for us. Um, I think partly this, this shows that uh, go governments in low and middle income countries are, are often quite small and in some ways more accessible. Um, but this is sort of one route of many that we found has, has been productive. Um, other things we've done are connect through our Airbnb hosts when we're staying in a country, uh, speaking to friends who've maybe done medical electives uh, in different countries and, and using their connections, reaching out to authors on academic papers, really anything and everything we can do to, to reach out to people in the country and reaching out to our networks uh, has, has been really productive and better than we were expecting. So the second point I'll make is related to these paint studies. Uh, we've been able to generate data that is relevant to the countries we're working in. So I showed you this, this graph earlier, um, but this time I'll just point out the number of countries that have no data at all. And it's just very likely that no one really knows if lead paint is available in those countries where a study has not been done yet. So when we come along and do the, what is a very simple, cheap study, uh, it really generates a huge amount of evidence compared to what was there already. And this is a really effective uh, opener for our conversations with, with policymakers and, and other people. And it's also really persuasive. It just fairly conclusively shows that lead uh, is available in paint and that people are using it. Um, and so then everyone knows that this, this is an issue that should be worked on. Uh, so it's helpful for us in persuading policymakers, but also for the policymakers to persuade their, their peers and their, their boss um, that this is something to work on. It's even more useful to the manufacturers themselves who may not be fully aware that there's lead in their paint, but then when we show them the test results, it's very, very clear. The third thing which I think is, uh, help, helps how fast that we can move, uh, this is a, a bit of a technical slide, but often regulations don't need to, to go through Parliament, which could be a slow step in, in 
getting that political support. So the point is that there are many different ways a lead paint law could be introduced, and it often can be tagged on to an existing law. So there might be some environmental or chemical law that already exists, and you can bring in new standard uh, tagged on to that that then doesn't need to, to go through Parliament. Um, so it's a bit of a technical thing, but if there are policies out there that there could be similar ways to, to sort of speed this process up, it's probably been helpful to us. We're also really lucky that there is a body called the Global Alliance to Eliminate Lead Paint uh, that exists. This is a cooperative initiative led by the WHO and the UN Environment Programme. One thing they do is produce resources like this. There's a, a technical policy brief on the left uh, and a model law on the right, which uh, you, can be used by countries introducing new lead paint laws. Uh, other things they do which are really helpful is, is provide credibility to us. We're you know, a new young organization, but being able to say we're partners of this initiative led by WHO and the UN is, is helpful. And they do perform some outreach work as well. Um, so they've connected with governments in some cases already, and they can then introduce us to those policymakers. So this does definitely provide um, some support for these, these three ways from, from the Global Alliance to Eliminate Lead Paint. And the final point I'll make is that there's a fairly clear, compelling, and universally agreed on case for our work. So nobody likes the idea of kids being poisoned. Uh, we've known about the harms from lead exposure for a long time. It's very well evidenced. Uh, and that means, yeah, it's, it's a very clear case. It's also because it affects health and the economy, it means you can reach out to sort of lots of people across government and garner support from different, different parts of the government. Uh, lead paint specifically is quite a, an appealing policy. It's not too expensive for governments to implement, nor is it particularly costly for manufacturers to switch their paint either. So I think we have found some low-hanging fruit in the policy world, and we're just really eager to get rid of lead paint across the whole world as quickly as we can. So how are we going to do that? What is next for LEAP? Well, we're currently working on some ambitious scaling plans to ramp up our paint programs. Uh, we've also been doing some work on kind of advocating for high leverage opportunities. So for example, uh, we've written a, a memo aimed at USAID, hoping to convince them to get more blood lead level testing done around the world. So there really is a bit of a, a dearth of data out there. Uh, and finally, we would like to pilot some programs addressing other sources of lead exposure. So if you remember back, I mentioned there's actually lots of sources out there. So we're going to look and see if there's some more work that we can done that can be done as well as our lead paint work. If you'd like to get involved, there are uh, several ways you could do that. Do sign up to our newsletter or social media to find about updates of our work. Uh, we'll probably have some volunteering opportunities uh, in a month or two. So if you'd like to help us out for five to 10 hours a week or something, then, then get in touch. We'll be hiring program managers later this year to expand our paint programs as well as a head of operations. So you know, sign up to the newsletter or whatever to make sure you, you hear about that if you're interested. Uh, I mentioned that we did the Charity Entrepreneurship Incubation Program. They are accepting applications until March the 31st. Uh, great extended deadline is a week later. Uh, so highly encourage you to do that if you're interested in this kind of non-profit entrepreneurship type work. And finally, if anything I've been chatting about today uh, is something you have experience in or you're interested in, we'd love to chat later. Uh, I've got quite a lot of available time. Uh, and yeah, anyone who's scaled programs similar to Leap, uh, this is something we're really thinking about right now. So we're keen to discuss that as well. So do reach out and chat. 
Thank you to everybody here for listening and thank you to our funders, including Schmidt Futures and all the individuals in the Fetch Action community who have donated, as well as our partners in country. Uh, this is really like a team effort to eliminate lead paint. So thank you to everyone that we work with. app now um, I see one question so just to start um, uh, I think Martin is asking is there or have you thought about setting a network um, of expertise for similar orgs wanting to do policy change yes <laughs> we have um, I guess we haven't got that far with that but mm. this yeah I, I think it's really appealing that I hope we are building up a network of connections and experience in policy change and if we can use that to other interventions, whether that's uh, environmental or you know, maybe even some long-termist ideas, who knows? I think that could be exciting. So, yep, you know, watch this space. And if you've got ideas like that, please tell us. I'm really interested to, to hear about them. Awesome. Um, yeah, um, just in case uh, people don't know how, like, how uh, the questions are going to work, if you go to the event, and click on live discussion, you'll be able to ask questions, I think. Oh, okay, so there's another question. Despite the wide, widespread known health risk, why is lead so commonly found in so many products, such as um, species? Um, yeah, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but okay. basically why is it so common amongst? Yeah, um, I mean, I suppose products. it's just quite a useful metal. It's just got lots of nice properties that make it helpful, unfortunately. Um, it is quite good in paint in that it makes this really glossy, colorful, sort of high-performance paint. Um, it's not necessary. We, we know how to make paint without lead in now, but it just has these properties that means historically it's been, it's been used a lot. Um, and yeah, but hopefully we can, as I say, get rid of it. Yeah. Um, and Jonas asks, you, br you briefly mentioned scaling up. So how scalable do you estimate your work to be? Uh, how much cost-effective funding do you estimate might um, might lead be able to absorb? Yeah, so in terms of lead paint, we think it's highly cost-effective, we think it's highly scalable. I really hope we can actually get rid of it. I don't think it's crazy to think in five years it's, it's been banned across the whole world. Um, how much funding could that absorb? Uh, hard to say. I did do a very quick estimate and came in at $15 million, which I suspect is going to be too low because stuff always is harder than you expect. Yeah. But uh, that kind of level. So it's not, not crazy high. And this is why we want to look at other sources of lead exposure. Um, and it's a little bit early to say about how much funding we could absorb there. There's, it's a huge problem. You know, so the scale of the problem is massive. The question is, how tractable is it to get rid of those other sources? And that's yeah, work we want to, work we want to be doing. Um, and um, I'm not going to try to pronounce some of these names. I'm going to mess up. But uh, from the two maps you showed, it seemed like countries with policies uh, were still identified as, as having high levels of lead paint. Um, yeah, was okay, there sure. reason for that? Yeah, so sometimes the studies will have been done before the regulation came in. So the study will have been before um, yeah, the regulation come in. So it might be the case that now the paint has gone from the market. Uh, but it, it is very likely lots of countries with regulation is not perfectly enforced. And so there is still lead paint available, even where there is regulation. And this is why I made the point that we want this to be done well. Enforcement is, is very important. Um, so 
yeah, it's not the case of just getting the regulation in and then leaving. Uh, it's going to have to put in some more work to make sure it's actually gone. Yeah, that's fair. Um, can you say more about how you evaluate the trade-off between doing interventions versus moving quickly and working in multiple places in parallel? Um, yeah, so I, yes, it's a good question. Um, so, I mean, some amount we're about, we're allowed, we can work in lots of countries because, uh, although I'm saying it's fast, it's still a bit slow with policy change. You still have to wait on other people to some extent so we can be working in lots of countries at once. Um, uh, but really, I think we're, we're kind of figuring things out as we go, as, as early organizations do. Um, as problems come up, we try and deal with them. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if it's going well, then we'll keep going. Um, and keep advocating. And the nice thing we have is the fact we can always go back and test the paint. And I really think this is kind of a useful tool that we have. It means um, if we're not sure if things are going as well as we thought or something like that, we can test the paint again and we always know. Um, and it's quite hard to get away from that. And I think that's very useful in the um, kind of policy change space. Yeah. Um, so I, we're coming up on the end time for the talk, but I think feel free to stay or, uh, or leave if you have a different talk to go to around 11.30, but um, there's some more questions that we can get through. So do you have tips for people wanting to go into animal advocacy policy or ways that, you know, what you've learned can be applied to the animal advocacy space? Mm. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, tips for the animal advocacy. So I guess um, same, same things apply. Uh, reach out to lots of people, trying to find different routes to engagement, um, different people who will care about your cause for different reasons and kind of build that kind of broad uh, coalition. Um, yeah, I don't know what the equivalent would be, but some kind of similar thing for, with the data. If you can have something that's compelling, some evidence, some data that shows people in that context um, what's going on, that's really useful. Um, policymakers definitely care about <laughs> their country or whatever their, their remit that they have. So do you try and find something that's relevant to them to them there, right. yeah. You want to take um, one more question or? Well, so I'm going to go up to the career fair um, right. and be on a stool there. So if you want to ask any more questions, I will be there. Okay. Do you come along? Great. Thank you. <laughs>